The following program is brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers. and welcome to another edition of Restoration Radio. My name is Nicholas Wansbutter. I'm your host tonight, along with Stephen Heiner of True Restoration Press. What you just heard before you heard me to start our show was actually a clip of music from the Apollo 13 film, but it was written by James Horner, who also did the score for the film that's the topic of our show tonight, that being For Greater Glory, which is a film about the Cristero War in Mexico. And it's obviously a very overtly Catholic topic, and it turns out that it's a very Catholic film, it would seem. I myself haven't seen it, but... Uh, my co-host, uh, Stephen, he saw it very recently and was, I think, pleasantly surprised and rather enthusiastic about it. And once we discussed it, we realized uh, a impromptu edition of Restoration Radio would be warranted to discuss this film. So just to, for those who may not be familiar with the film, it's was released in theaters in the United States on June the 1st. It still is in theaters, although the number of theaters that it's appearing in seems to be dwindling quickly. So we would certainly be encouraging listeners to this show to support this good film and listen to it as soon as possible before it's out of theaters. It's a relatively big budget mainstream seeming uh, mainstream produced type of film it's in the big theaters it's playing alongside things like the avengers but it's a unusual topic for the sort of films that run in the cinema it's a, a chronicle of the cristeros war as i mentioned which was uh, ran between 1926 and 1929 in mexico it was in some ways similar to the vandean war which is probably better known to many of our listeners. Uh, and just to give our listeners a, a little bit of history before we get into the film, 
it really started in 1910 when Marxist and Masonic revolutionaries uh, took seized control of the government in Mexico, instituted a number of anti-clerical, anti-Catholic laws with the intent of driving the Catholic Church out of Mexico. Then in, I believe it was 1917 is when the first of those laws were passed. They were enforced to varying degrees depending on the local governor. Things didn't really start heating up until we get into 1926. The extremely and ruthlessly anti-Catholic president of that time was Plutarco Calles, who's depicted in this film by Reuben Blades. And he instituted a new series of laws that imposed severe fines and other sentences upon governors who didn't impose the gov government's will to wipe out Catholicism. And things really started coming to a head at that point. Catholicism was, for all intents and purposes, illegal in Mexico at that point, and in self-defense, and in defense of the social kingship of Christ the King, the Mexican people in various areas started to rise up. There were some non-violent attempts at resistance at first, but it quickly became obvious that armed defense was the only way that they were going to have any chance of surviving, let alone reestablishing our Lord's kingship. And I don't think this spoils anything from the film. I mean, this is historical fact. Sadly, in the end, they were, I would say, betrayed by Pius XI, Pope Pius XI and the Mexican bishops who brokered a peace deal of sorts with the anti-Catholic government, despite the fact that the Cristeros, contrary to what Wikipedia says, were nearly undefeated and were, from in, in hindsight, one could say that there's no reason to doubt that they could well have won the war. And, and just before we get into the film, just a little digression that I, I can't resist given current events, I, I find the timing and the providence of a film like this being in theaters, as Stephen, we discussed it, it's mind-boggling that this even made it into theaters, this sort of film, but it's interesting because there may be somewhat of a parallel between what's going on in the Society of St. Pius X right now. You have a group that have been fighting for years, uh, to a certain degree successful, now on the verge of being... Uh, sold into a, a peace treaty unwillingly with the enemy by their leader... I, I can definitely see that parallel. There there are some divergences, but yes, definitely. Right, so perhaps we'll just go right into the film, and I'm going to skip right to something that's really the meat of it for me, because this is something that prevented me from seeing it when it was still in Canadian theaters, is how religious liberty is portrayed in the film. The previews seem to, my impression of the previews is they give an idea that this film is going to be all about these people fighting for religious liberty, in general, liberty for all religions, and 
the Nova, certain Nova Sordo publications seem to be promoting that take on the film as well. I still receive Columbus magazine from back in my days when I was a, a Knight of Columbus. It seems that getting over that didn't stop my subscription. They had a big article on the on for greater glory going on about how it, it they made it sound like it's all about religious liberty and from reading Columbia over the years I read it just to keep an idea of what's going on in the world I'm not a part of anymore they're all about religious liberty and not in the traditional sense but in the John Paul II the supercalifragilistic expialidocious way of religious liberty so Stephen I want to ask get you to start with your impressions about how religious liberty is depicted in this film from your viewing of it well i i mean i guess i would i would look at the lens of the trailer promotion in the same way that we looked at snow white a couple weeks back and your impression was from the trailer was you know she'd be swinging a sword pretty much the entire film and my takeaway from that was the trailer was what they thought would attract people to the theaters, obviously not what it was about. And so I think here the sort of Braveheart narrative of fighting for freedom is what they thought would attract people to theaters because if they advertised that this was about the rosary and the Eucharist and Jesus, the people might not come unless it was something overt like the passion. You know, um, I think it was a marketing ploy and... I wanted to see it because of the theme of the movie, um, and I didn't see the trailer, I think, that scared you off, although I did see a trailer in which sort of religious liberty was sort of front and center, or the idea of quote-unquote freedom. So, in the film, a couple of the major characters um, are fighting for religious liberty, but what's interesting about their fight is that they see a connection with the suppression of the church. So it, it's in the so, sort of Voltaire line of thought that uh, I will defend your right uh, to say even something I disagree with. Uh, so they thought if the church is attacked, we'll be attacked soon too. So it was a prudential move for them to ally themselves with the church, but even they, as non-religious people, could see that when you're hanging priests in church that there is not too much restraint ahead for your country. So the people who were in the League for the Defense of Religious Liberty and also the general who himself uh, was not a believer, who um, who joined with the Cristeros, there seemed to be a sort of practical agreement that this was the right... We two are together, even though obviously the church not now, not ever, has approved of religious liberty. Um, it seemed to make make sense. I, I would I would argue in the same way that Franco accepted help from Hitler during the war uh, because he wanted to secure his country for Christ uh, and then distance himself afterwards. So religious liberty in the film, is it there? Absolutely. It's absolutely talked about. And it's not something which is in, a, is in the back seat. But I look at it in context. In the film, I have scapulars, rosaries, banners of the Virgin of Guadalupe, prayers, confession, mass, benediction. So 
when I see that, I realize, obviously, the Cristeros were the, the underlying movement. These people helped them with newspapers, money, fundraising, uh, communications between the cities, things that the Cristeros needed help with. So did the film focus a bit more on some of these non-Catholic people involved, such as General Gorostieta? Or does it also show the, the Cristeros themselves as main characters? Yes. So there are a number of story threads um, that you'll see. And I think probably the one I'd like to start talking about is Peter O'Toole's beginning to the movie, um, where he is um, a priest who is not foreign-born. The dispute is getting rid of foreign-born bishops and priests because they will be um, influencers against Mexico. That's the sort of pretext that if we get rid of the foreign-borns, then we'll have pure Mexico. So he would be considered foreign-born even though he was seven years old when he came to Mexico. Uh, he's European, but he's essentially Mexican in spirit, you could say. He uh, befriends a, a, a young boy um, who, you know, threw a, a fruit at him, and his father, you know, said, you have to go work in the church for insulting a man of God. And obviously the the boy is not particularly religious, sort of culturally Catholic, to, you know, throw a fruit at a priest and laugh about it. So at first, you know, the boy is sweeping, um, but he he grows to have a friendship with the Peter O'Toole priest character. And at some point, um, he Peter O'Toole is sitting in a fiddleback black vestment um, in a pew, and the boy knows that the federales are coming to the town. He says, Father, you can't be in clerical garb. You have to come hide. Come hide at my house. And Peter O'Toole says, you know, this, you know, why would I hide, you know, and this is my house, referring to the church. And he's marched out, and the boy watches from the bell tower this execution scene. And, and Peter O'Toole, of course, you know, magnificent actor, and he's in, he's very old now. But this execution scene communicates so much with so few words. Peter O'Toole is just sort of, he's got his eyes lifted, lifted to heaven. You can see that he's praying. Um, he's praying prayers under his breath. And he's, he's quietly resigned. The soldiers lined up, uh, and they shoot him. And, and after you hear the gunfire, you just see sort of this, the vestments fall into the wall. And it's, um, it's a real martyrdom scene that isn't full of gore, but it's also very solemn, um, very emotional uh, for any of us who, at least those of us who are watching it, um, I thought it was very, very powerful without uh, being sentimental. Okay. So that... Um, for example, to me, is one of those pieces of context that I have to look at through the whole film and say, well, if the film's about religious liberty, why are we showing a priest getting murdered by a bunch of soldiers um, and, and showing it in a heroic light? And this martyrdom from this priest inspires that young boy whose martyrdom finishes the movie or is one of the finishing scenes of the movie. And it's a huge transformation for him because he came, of course, from being a miscreant boy to being someone who is willing to be tortured for our Lord. So when you see all of those things, I think one of the, one of the complaints I've heard uh, it was even mentioning religious liberty. It says, well, if this had really been Catholic, they wouldn't even have mentioned it. And I thought, um, well, it's not historically true to say that um, the, the League of the Defense of Religious, religious Liberty had nothing to do with the story. They certainly did. 
But I do think, too, that gives us some room for growth in realizing that not everybody came wanting to be a Cristero, that there was growth for everyone involved. So as far as um, the depiction of religious liberty, it's there, but it's not militant. Uh, we don't see any other groups. There, There's not a... It doesn't seem as though there's any other religion in the film. So, yes, religious liberty, but we don't see any other cults or sects or religions mentioned other than Catholicism. So it's more of a freedom for the Catholic faith. Yes. And that freedom theme, we've seen that taken up in Braveheart, we've seen it taken up in The Patriot, and these other movies where it's about freedom. Um and when you see that these people are dying for Christ, the sort of idea of dying for freedom, to me, always seems to ring a bit hollow. You know, freedom is the, the martyrdom of those without religion. Um, because dying for freedom is a very sort of odd, vague idea. And I'm not sure what that means. I'm sure that's what Americans tell themselves when we are guarding oil reserves in the Middle East. But, um, well, the, the, the yes, yeah, you've anticipated somewhat what I was going to say is Surely it would be as shocking as it is that this film is as Catholic as it is. Surely no film could be released in America without freedom being the the great rallying cry. Absolutely. And now, uh and that's what makes it attractive, I think. And probably that's why that was part of the trailer perhaps, you know, fighting for freedom, you know, whatever that means. Although one wonders if that marketing ploy didn't backfire somewhat in a similar fashion that I think it maybe backfired a bit in the Snow White film, although both of these films look to be breaking even, although, I mean, Snow White had a budget of $170 million and For Greater Glory had a budget of $13 million, or $12 right. million, I think. Um, it's only grossed about $3.5 million in the United States, which really isn't very much. No, it's and it's you know, the the idea of walking out of that movie and calling you and saying I was stunned that such a movie was made. Well, we might not get any more movies like this if if we don't uh, if it doesn't break even. And breaking even would just mean that someone would be very reluctant to do such a movie again, much less you know a profit where someone would actually want to do it again. So right. well, I think yeah, I think it's made a modest profit because what I'm looking at is showing. Almost 14 million it made in Mexico in the opening weekend. Oh well, that's and great. as of and as of June 10th, it's made three and a half in the United States. So okay, well, so but, there, there's some there's some modest profit. But well, from that, it's made close to four million profit. So I suppose that's nothing to 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 laugh at. But uh, another thing that I'd be interested to know, and I think our listeners might be listening to know, interested to know, is in the history of the Cristero War, certainly in histories written by Catholics rather than by Marxists, and I'm thinking specifically of the book written by Christopher Czech, The Cristeros and the Martyrs of the Mexican Revolution, there was a certain amount of miraculous intervention that occurred, and miracles that were witnessed by the non-Catholic side, the, the the enemies of Christ who were trying to fight the Cristeros and remarking in certain battles with astonishment that they'd fire their cannons at them and none of them would go down. 
and if I if I'm not being getting myself confused with things that have happened in other events in history, I, I believe there is even one sighting of the Virgin Mary, or who they think a young girl on a white horse that was leading the Cristero army, as described by the. Um, government soldiers. Is there any of that in the film, or is it portrayed purely natural battle prowess that leads them to victories? No, you know, interestingly, there are not a lot of battle scenes. So what we, what you're, what you see in the movie, there's a lot more story development, and you see skirmishes or bits of battles. So one of the important battles that's one that forces forces a a parlay between the president and the general. Uh, we only see the beginning of it um, before, you know, it, it, it involved a loss of 5,000 to the Mexican army. So, But we only see, let's say, an engagement with the the first group. So I think that's part of maybe preserving the cost, you know, the scale of an epic um, hand, you know, the sort of hand-to-hand close-in combat of that, of that period would have probably driven the production cost up quite a bit. So we still see some of that. And... Those familiar with the history, there are there are those notes to that. So there's a scene in which um, one of the Crucero generals asks if all the men and women are off this train, and the soldiers say yes, there are, and then they light the uh, they light the train on fire, and of course some people did not get off the train, and this was the, something that the government used as a as a PR issue and say see what barbarians. These Cristeros are like 50 men and women burned alive, and of course, you know, ignoring the people hanging from telegraph poles, and right. uh, people whose uh, soles of their feet were being cut off, or priests who were being murdered in the church, uh, you know, being hung, being shot. And I think that too, for me, was the battle. So watching, watching them burn crucifixes, taking down large altar crucifixes and putting them on fires. Um, watching them shoot statues in the church, watching them hang priests in the church. That violence, I think, to me, was the substitute for those sort of large battle violence because it was almost secondary. It was more important, I think, for people to see that this stuff happened because we're familiar with this story because you and I love history, and particularly we're interested in stuff about martyrdom that has happened recently, um, apart from the Vandean conflict, which, interestingly enough, the Vandean conflict is now being called the first modern genocide, and it's being fought by a certain group who wants to keep genocide as their exclusive right. But um, the this story, um, for those who don't know, that's a chance for them to see it for the first time, to find out that priests were murdered, to find out that women and children were murdered indiscriminately, and they were murdered for being Catholic. Because the idea that, oh, you know, these foreign these foreigners are being subversive, it's very hard to believe when you're hanging priests in a church. So I think that was the battlefield stuff. There are, I think they do take things that are directly from the history, and there are, and they fill in the rest, but I think mostly the film is 80 to 85% historically accurate. The one that a lot of people have brought up and I think is fair is one of the generals was a priest, and he was not, let's say, particularly the best priest. And, of course, as you know, it's forbidden for priests to take up weapons uh, and fight in a war. It's a very ancient sort of 
uh, prohibition. Well, yeah, yeah, it's been that way since the 800s. Back in the good old days, uh, Saint Remy and uh, his contemporaries took up. The well, sword. Nicholas, Nicholas would bring, bring back fighting priests, I'm guessing. <laughs> but um, uh, just moving along, and I should just uh, pause in case there's anyone who's just joining us now. You're listening to Restoration Radio with uh, I'm uh, your main host, Nicholas Wandsbutter. I run Swords in Space, and I'm with Stephen Heiner of True Restoration Press. We are discussing this evening the film For Greater Glory that's currently in theaters, and we strongly recommend any of our listeners to go and see it. And from what we've been discussing so far, Stephen, what what I'm hearing, and I, in, in fairness to the preview that I was earlier saying I thought looks like it's going to be all about religious liberty, it, even the preview from what you're telling me sounds like there's a more uh, authentic and even militant, perhaps not so much in all the battle scenes, but uh, a militant depiction of Catholicism. And I can tr- contrast that with the sappy, happy, clappy 1950s sound of the uh, Catholicism portrayed in the sound of music. Mm. Yeah, it's very rough. Uh, you know, priests are saying mass out on the battlefield with whatever they can to say. And uh, it's obvious to me that the actor portraying the priest is not a priest, but frankly, his Latin pronunciation was pretty much dead on. And most of his rubrics, the only rubric that I could tell he was off on is he did not hold his thumb and forefinger together post-consecration. Um, but he was probably just imitating some Novus Ordo that he might have seen. Well, yeah, I mean... Uh, nowadays, who would even know that unless you're some <laughs> diehard rad trad? You wouldn't even know that that's well, and those people are just crazy. Authentic. And Nicholas, I'm I'm sorry, we had forgotten to mention we we are taking we are taking questions on Twitter, and there's a gentleman um, who anticipated our discussion. He asked, "What about the glorification of liberty in the trailer? Is the film really about Catholicism or enlightenment enlightenment liberty?" And I have to say, looking at that question, I wonder what untold damage pre damage was done two Catholics thinking that this was what the film was going to be about, and so they didn't even give it a chance. Um, they didn't even go and see it to see if it had been subverted. So hopefully Although we answered that question. That, one would think that the mainstream Catholics would have been all about it, seeing that type of a trailer. Yeah, I, who, who knows? Um we are just. We normally take call, um, phone calls, but today we're just going to limit it to Twitter. So if you have questions, please send us questions at True Restoration because we're doing a shorter evening show today. Or or Facebook. We'll we'll take comments on Facebook. Yes. And we're starting to close in on our end time a little bit here. And there's there's one uh, criticism, a fairly strong criticism I've seen is of this film on the purely artistic merits. And certainly the non-Catholic critics have torn this film to ribbons. Uh, I just looked on Rotten Tomatoes, which is a website that gives a uh, aggregate of hundreds of different reviews, and you can see little thumbnail sketches of all the reviews. And it, it gets 17% on... Yeah on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, 17%. I'm trying to think of another film. That no, I mean, I'm thinking of like The Last, Airbe- I mean, the last Airbender would have been that low. I, I, can't, I can't think of something that, that was that low recently. Um, even right. even X-Men Wolverine got like 50-something. 
Right. I mean, usually it's truly putrid films that get below 20% on there. Uh, I mean, I'm just looking like even Battleship that's in the theater right now, about 34%. Uh, the Dictator uh-huh. is getting 58%. Um, well, I think part of that, Nicholas, you have to look, look at the context for some of these reviews. Like, So I read the Boston Globe review, and one of the lines was, what has happened to the sex bomb that is Andy Garcia? You know, because here he's dressed looking, you know, like a Mexican general instead of, you know, like some sex symbol. So I, if a review includes a deploring that Andy Garcia is not playing his normal sexy self, I'm not that surprised that it's got a 17%. Um, especially, I have to imagine if I'm a secularist or an atheist, I don't, want, I don't care if priests are getting shot. I mean, it might be shocking, but it doesn't have any resonance for them. It just looks like this sort of story... And I do think that one of the criticisms that's valid is that the story assumes you know the story. So it's not a catechetical uh, movie. It doesn't teach you about Catholicism, and it doesn't teach you about the Cristeros. It gives you impressions of Catholicism and impressions of the, the war. The whole war is not sketched out for you, beginning and end. Um, and the Catholic faith is not sketched out for you beginning and end. It assumes you, you know what's going on. It You know that that's a mass that's going on. If not, you might just think, oh, that's some religious ceremony if I'm not Catholic. Uh, if you're Catholic, you notice that's benediction. If you um, are Catholic, you notice that's confession. So it is. I think the film does assume that you're Catholic or you know something about Catholicism, and you know at least something about the war. And if you don't, you can still come to it and appreciate it. But if, if someone's making that uh, um, argument, okay, I accept that. It's not a, a very good um, catechetical film in that way. It doesn't go into deep details about Catholicism or the Cristero movement or the war. I, but I don't think right. that's the function of a movie. Hopefully the movie stirs you to go and read Bloodstained Altars or the other great books that are out there about what happened. The other point that was made in some of those reviews, and to your point, and I got into a, uh, a Facebook thread discussion about this earlier today, is this, this sort of artistic quality. Right. And I yeah, think that, that, that's what I want to get into. Yeah. I think, uh, let me share a story um, with the listeners. I was at the Chatillon de Menil mansion in St. Louis, and St. Louis has all these beautiful historic homes. And when you come into the front of that house, you see this lamp. It's a gas uh, original gas line lamp, but the lamp is this beautiful young woman and holding a torch, and the torch, obviously, this this whole metal, very intricately carved, but the torch is, of course, the lamp. Well, we don't have that level of craftsmanship on a wide scale in the United States anymore. There are certainly people who are still craftsmen, doing some things, but we've lost some things. I think, Nicholas, you have a gentleman up uh, in Canada who knows how to make altars, correct? He yeah, knows how to make traditions with, with, with wood, right? Well, how many people know how to do that? So if, if there is a large amount of craft going on, then certainly we can ac- accept and desire a higher level of craftsmanship. But when something's new, we can accept that they're still learning. So some of the quotes, some of the people that were listed were people like Martin Scorsese, Christopher Nolan. Of course, the Dark Knight movie comes out in about a month. I'm very excited about it, and I, I love the movies that have come before. But Christopher Nolan, Martin Scorsese, all these people grew up in a secular soup of movie making. 
So for them, they have all sorts of influences they can draw on, and they're held to a higher standard. But the reason that I was shocked in the movie is the very reason for the justification of why we don't have to hold it to that high of a standard is because they haven't been surrounded by movies like this. They haven't been surrounded by movies where Catholicism is not bad-mouthed and trashed in a movie, but is actually upheld as an ideal and as something to be fought for and something that people are willing to die for, not, you know, as we unfortunately hear about the child molestation cases or all the other negative things. If there aren't Catholic filmmakers making Catholic films growing up being nurtured by other Catholic filmmakers then certainly they're not going to be as at a high and developed level that you're going to see from a Christopher Nolan or a Martin Scorsese or, or any of these other... I, I'm one of my personal favorite directors is Michael Mann, who did Last of the Mohicans. You're not going to see that sort of artistry, but it's still very, very functional as a good story and a good vehicle for introducing people to this topic. And hopefully, sometimes, especially regarding history, that's what a good movie is supposed to do introduce you so that you can go and and learn more about it, not to tell you the whole story. Uh, so as far as the art craftsmanship, certainly it's not up there with... And you and I had talked before the show about A Man for All Seasons, and we think about that as a movie that's executed well on so many levels. But frankly, A Man for All Seasons is not nearly as Catholic as, as For Greater Glory. The, the references to Catholicism there, again, are in the background. We know that he's fighting for marriage, and we hear about the church and, and Luther, and again, at the end, he finally takes his stand very bravely, St. Thomas More does. But the movie, there's so much more going on uh, in A Man for All Seasons, and one could arguably say, well, you know, it's not all about Catholicism, and that's true. But artistically, it's a fantastic movie. So I think we can have both. We can have movies like A Man for All Seasons, where artistically it's done well. It won the Oscar that year for Best Picture. And we can have movies like For Greater Glory, where it's so explicitly Catholic, but maybe not done as artistically well as we would like. But hopefully this leads a young filmmaker to aspire to make those better films. So I think it's certainly good. It's certainly a solid effort. If you, if you want to give it a grade, I'd say it's a B for artistry. But uh, James Horner does a decent job, although the very reason that uh, we picked Apollo 13 is because it sounded like a James Horner theme. Uh, one of these problems with modern composers is they, they sound like themselves very often. The, the exception to this, I think, is John Williams, who does a very good job. But um, the, the gentleman, who is he? Uh, he did, he did uh, The Dark Knight and he did Inception, Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer sounds like himself all the time. So hopefully the Apollo 13 score that we use gave you a bit of a sense of, of the kind of music that's in there, but I think it's well scored and it goes along very well with the costuming and the storyline. Right. Yeah, and from the previews, it looks like the costuming is well done. It, it's would you, throughout the film. Would you agree? It's it's credible. It, it gives you the feel of the historical setting. Mm-hmm, absolutely, I think so. And and, 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 uh, and well decorated too. It isn't it isn't just sort of some sort of plain thing. There are some very ornate, um, ornate. Um, costuming as well. And I'm just looking, I was saying the, the tomato meter gave it 17%, but they also have the audience rating, and the audience rating for it is 85%. <laughs> so it seems that, that the audience that are watching it are liking it. And frankly, my rule of thumb has generally been that 
if it gets a bad rating from the critics, it's generally a film that I like. Uh, Snow White and the Huntsman that we were discussing a few weeks ago is 48% from the critics, and I thought it was definitely worth more than 48% compared to some of the things that they give the big numbers to. Sure. Well, to be fair, For Greater Glory's audience is self-selecting. Who's the sort? What kind of people are going to go see that movie? They're probably going to like it, right? Except for the fifteen percent who say, "Oh, it's not Catholic enough," or it's about religious liberty or something, uh, which isn't true. I think you can take that from the or trailer, the few who, but you can't take right, that. Or from the few non-Catholics who, or the few non-Catholics who bumble in there, not knowing what to expect, and then think, "What's all this Catholicism?" Yeah, and then maybe they walk out. So I I I hmm, that's interesting that you say if the critics don't like it then you'll like it. I I you know it's funny I don't use Rotten Tomatoes very much. I, I generally trust my instinct on trailers, but it seems it would have stirred um stirred me wrong in in both the Snow White and uh, for Greater Glory case. Right. Well, we're running right up against our end time here, so uh, is there anything else that you'd like to mention about the film before we close off? Well, I think uh, something that I think would definitely be a uh, a Durandal topic is the role of women uh, in this war and in this battle. And we don't see women out on the front lines fighting. Uh, it just wasn't done. It's not to say that that never happened. The Cristero movement was fragmented in some ways, and there wasn't wasn't always unity there. However, the women did participate um, by helping to deliver, helping to nurse the sick, helping to deliver weapons, helping to deliver ammunition. Um, they would smuggle ammunition uh, under under their under their clothes um, to different parts of uh, Mexico. So. The women participating there are very they're portrayed as as strong and resolute, uh, but also not out there, you know, cutting throats. Um, and that action is believable, but not brutal and gory. Well, let me say some of it is very very brutal, especially the murdering of of these priests and these children, some of these women. It's very very brutal, but it's not gory. I think that's the way I would parse it. It's some of it's very brutal, but not gory, and we can't seem to get away from goriness in in modern in modern film. All right. Well, so uh, I would thank just, you, you know, for if, if we think about terms, uh, you know, two thumbs up. Uh, uh, I would say four thumbs up if I could give it. Um, definitely go see it. It's going to be out of theaters soon. You've got Amazing Spider-Man and Batman coming up going to push these smaller films out of the theaters. So I wouldn't wait another week or two. Go see it now. It's an amazing film. Um, I think one of the finest Catholic films I've ever seen in the theaters. Um, certainly true. Um, someone had brought up The Passion, and I, oddly enough, I never went to go see The Passion in the theaters. But it's something that is well worth seeing. Something, um, Nicholas, again, we talked about uh, younger children before the show, and you said that your children have not seen Lord of the Rings. And is it because of that level of violence? Yes, I think they'd be too scared. To so there, I would I would say that. maybe save this for teenagers, um, insofar as some of the brutality, I think, is just too rough for non-high schoolers to see. So I'd really... And again, I'm speaking as the non-parent in this show. My, you know, Nicholas is a parent of, of four. 
However, I teach high school kids, and I have for the last 10 years, and I, I feel like they, are, they have more context and more ability to understand the violence than perhaps the younger children. I'm not an advocate of, oh, well, there's no sex, and it's just violence, so it's okay for the kids to see it. I very much think that you know, we, have to, we have to keep an eye on the violence as well. All right, well, thank you, Stephen, for uh, all your thoughts on the film. I'm certainly sorry that I missed it when it was in theaters in Canada. I think it was in theaters up here for all of a week. Mm-hmm. But uh, I hope that our American friends are able to get out and see it and support this good film, and hopefully it'll be the first of several uh, as we go forward. So we're going we'll- to... Uh, leave everyone with uh, some more music from Mr. Horner and uh, once again I'm Nicholas Wansbutter you can find me at www.swordsandspace.com that's my blog uh, focusing on I think Stephen styled it Canticle of Leibowitz style science fiction fantasy fiction and Stephen Heiner has been my co-host tonight you can find him at truerestoration.blogspot.ca or at truerestorationpress.com program was brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers.